Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, when I titled the episode last week, the Quarantine Everything Edition, I did not mean us. Should have been more specific. Clearly. Yet here we are, rational security in exile. <laughs> we are currently, uh, let's see, Michaela, Susan, and I are in the Jungle Studio. A meter apart between all of us. <laughs> Social distancing. Uh, and Ben and Tammy are currently uh, in a remote location. Uh, and I have a feeling that next week we will all be in remote locations. But the wonder of technology is that we can do this even bifurcated this week or quadfurcated next week. And our dear, dear listeners will not have to miss an episode. And I, for one, am going to stop making jokes. Why? Forever. <laughs> right after this one. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the My Corona edition. I'm Shane Harris. We could have a Corona today instead of scotch. That would have been appropriate. I am drinking scotch. I'm drinking Hoppen. Well, we know the that the virus uh, is easily destroyed by alcohol, Ben, so good on you. Yeah, I'm just going to consume lots of alcohol. <laughs> there's, a bo- there's a bottle here with two glasses, but I forgot to clean them first, and so I'm not touching anything. I'm just <laughs> drinking Purell. Just, exactly. just rub, it's more expensive than Buna Rub <laughs> the scotch over your body. Right. <laughs> I do need something. My hands are getting red from washing so yes. much. Oh, yeah. I'm getting... I need to moisturize. Moisturize, Shea butter for everybody. Yeah, so we are uh, here doing this remotely. Uh, uh, I have a a feeling next week we will all be remote. Certainly I am working from home now. The post is sent home. Uh, Anybody who does not need to legitimately be in the office to accomplish your job, which is most of us, really. Uh, so most of us reporters are kind of out and teleconferencing. Uh, and uh, I think this is happening a lot around the city. Actually, it's becoming a little more common. Lawfare headquarters is closed. Other than your all's presence to record rational security, we are using uh, Lawfare HQ only as absolutely necessary. <laughs> it may become a bunker. And Lawfare <laughs> listeners can do their part by washing their hands, engaging in social distancing, and do not complain to us about audio quality. <laughs> in the midst of the right. pandemic, we're doing the best we can. That's right. All right. Well, on the podcast this week, as the coronavirus spreads, U.S. officials face a public health crisis and the threat of an economic recession. The World Health Organization has officially declared coronavirus a pandemic. How are other countries responding and what can the U.S. learn from them? And there's tumult in Saudi Arabia amid another power grab by the crown prince and an oil war with Russia, which, of course, is making the economic situation uh, all the worse. So let's start with things here on the home front with corona in the U.S. I want to stipulate a couple of things just at the outset for the discussion um, that I think are important as kind of ground facts. One is that the Trump administration came in uh, to power in 2017, having been told during the transition that pandemic disease 
was not just a possibility, but it was a likelihood. There were tabletop exercises on this with incoming officials. This was not a black swan event, as some people, I think, have been out there trying to portray it. Uh, And frankly, even before that, I mean, I remember reporting after 9-11, immediately people started saying we need to worry about pandemics as well as terrorism. So this has been something that people in the national security field have been thinking about for a long time. That said, if we're looking just at this event, some important facts, I think most experts agree at this point, and privately we hear this from a lot of U.S. officials too, frankly, that the failure to get a viable test early on hampered the initial response. And we're now at a point where it seems that organizations are kind of taking it upon themselves as they move forward, closing schools, sending employees home, the kind of things we're talking about. So, Ben, with kind of all of that as the backdrop, right now, how do you rate kind of at a at a 20,000-foot level the role that the federal government and the White House and the administration uh, are doing handling this crisis? Yeah, so it's a hard question, and I'm going to, at one level, it's a hard question, and that is that, you know, it is not clear to me that had everything been done perfectly, the results would be that much different. There aren't a lot of countries that you can point to that you say, boy, their response has been perfect. And look, they've really, you know, not had a coronavirus problem. That said, the response has been terrible. And it's been terrible at every level that you would hope it would be good. Uh, The testing has been a disaster and lost a lot of time, during which the virus has clearly spread. We've had about a thousand documented cases now, and that probably means uh, somewhere, some multiple of that in actuality. We don't know how many. Um, The public messaging could not have been worse, down to the fact that last night the president scheduled a rally on the 16th, even as the CDC is warning against uh, against large gatherings. There's been a lot of denial, and there have been not a lot of promotion of the responsible voices who were giving good information. So that aspect has been just terrible. Uh, and then the other aspect that has been uh, lousy is... You know, the CDC is the world's leading public health organization, but it really hasn't acted like that in this case. It's acted with a certain amount of turf uh, consciousness, and it has actually sort of sought to prevent other actors from hurrying tests along and getting uh, being as proactive as you would want them to be. So with the proviso that I don't know how much better off we would be if everything had gone well, I do think everything has gone really, really badly. Susan, I want to drill in a bit more to the White House response in particular on this because, you know, in this case, the White House has chosen to sort of focus all of the response largely through the vice president who has been holding these daily press conferences, many times having to say things that are at odds with the president. But they've really kind of run point on this. Like we're not seeing kind of Anthony Fauci in the lead. We're not seeing a Homeland Security secretary in the lead, but we don't really have one. Um, so Reuters actually reported today that the White House has ordered health officials to keep meetings about the virus and the response classified. 
I'm going to guess that you think that is a bad idea. And tell us why and talk about what that is showing us about the way that the White House is in the way it's constructed this response data and management day to day, how it's doing. Yeah, so this is not just incredibly irresponsible as a matter of pandemic response. It's an abuse of the U.S. classification system and of the president's constitutional authorities to classify information. It is clear from Reuters reporting. So what Reuters is reporting is that the White House directed HHS to hold meetings at a classified level at HHS. And so to to hold meetings in the SCIF there, um, individuals who didn't have security clearances were excluded from those meetings, including, according to anonymous officials, some, quote, very critical people who did not have security clearances were not allowed in the room. This was clearly motivated by a desire to not have information leak out to the public, not because there was a genuine national security imperative to control legitimately classified information, but instead because the president has been obsessed with the PR aspects of this and the market consequences of this. That's not what classified the classification system is for. That's not the purpose of classified information. It's actually sort of abusing the, the classification authorities um, in order to weaponize them against the American people. So again and again and again, and none of us are epidemiologists, none of us are sort of um, experts in this area, and we should acknowledge that. But what experts and doctors tell us over and over and are telling us over and over, including uh, government experts, is that information is critical. Information is vital. Communicating to the public matters. That's how we're going to flatten this curve uh, so that our hospital systems don't end up being overwhelmed. And what this shows is the Trump administration maliciously essentially preventing information from coming to the public and using national security authorities in order to do that, um, and then continuing to lie about it. So Reuters reports that this was a directive from the White House to HHS. And in response, um, Katie Miller, uh, the new Mrs. Stephen Miller, presumably fresh off of her honeymoon, um, hopefully not in Italy, told CNN that, quote, uh, the, in disputing the Reuters story that the White House coronavirus meetings are not being made classified, Miller said the meetings are being held in the Situation Room, but the meetings themselves are not classified. Nobody said the meetings at the White House were classified. People said that the White House directed HHS to hold classified meetings. And so once again, even in the face of really, really alarming consequential reporting, the White House's response is to obfuscate, to misdirect, and to lie. And this is a circumstance in which it's just unacceptable because it is going to get people killed. And, you know, I I do think that this is an area in which, you know, as we're going to see, you know, the death toll rise, um, you know, I I do think we should be um, clear and harsh in explaining that while the coronavirus is not the, the is not Trump's fault, the inadequate response and deaths that are attributed to this bumbled and incompetent response are attributable to the Trump administration. They should be held accountable for them. Um, you know, th- these steps that they're taking, not just to fail to respond to the crisis, but actually to actively exacerbate it by failing to get information out, by engaging in deeply irresponsible practices like the president saying he's going to continue to hold these rallies, and basically by just lying to the American public about what's going on and about what steps they need to take to protect themselves and their families. It's 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 really, really scary, shocking, alarming stuff. Yeah, and just to put a kind of fine point on that, from my own perspective, I tweeted this an hour or so ago. 
I mean, after 9-11, for a number of years, I reported on pandemic response and preparedness and syndromic surveillance and these kinds of things. And what Reuters is reporting is counter to everything I have ever been told by public health officials and homeland security officials about how you operate in an outbreak. You do not hoard information. You share information and you do everything you can to get useful information quickly to people who need it. And that really is the federal government's role oftentimes coordinating that to the state and local governments that are handling that on the front line. Yeah, and let's be clear. The only reason HHS even has a skiff in the first instance is because they might have to play the role in the case of biological warfare or chemical attacks. Right. There's this very, very, very specific, very limited reason why HHS would ever need to have a classified facility in the first place, and it's basically chemical warfare in the United States military and the sensitive intelligence that you might have to handle in that you know highly unlikely remote situation. It's, it's not supposed to be a way, uh, you know, to criminalize releasing legitimate public information. Tammy, I want to turn to you and talk about about the the political ramifications of this and also just what we're seeing in the in the campaign. We're already seeing Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have canceled rallies. Trump, as Ben mentioned, plans to go ahead with one. Uh, you know, you hear remarkably different responses, I think, from the partisan uh, sides of it, of the debate. Can we even really frankly call it a debate because we're trying to deal in the realm of science here? But, you know, is there a risk that this crisis, like everything else, just divides along partisan lines? And what are you seeing in this space that is troubling you? Yeah, Shane, I, I do think there's that risk, and I'll come to that in just a moment. But let me first um, just add a little bit of context to Susan's point about HHS and the classification of these meetings. And none of this is to defend the president or the White House in telling HHS to classify these meetings, which I agree is irresponsible and an abuse of the system and harmful to public health. But I do think that it falls into a little bit of a context. And as always, you know, we try to parse what's going on here that's about the Trump administration in particular and what's going on here that we need to think about more broadly. And so I just wanted to add the point that, you know, overclassification is a problem rife across the federal government. It has been used numerous times by administrations to uh, hide information that is politically damaging or publicly embarrassing. And, you know, yes, this is an extreme case where it has very concrete, very counterproductive effects in terms of pandemic response. But there's a context here that allows the Trump administration to give a directive like this and have it responded to. Another piece of that context is, by the way, this sort of securitization of the way we think about pandemics, you know, as yet another homeland security challenge up there with domestic terrorism. And when you securitize problems, then you also create a framework within which people think about protecting information rather than sharing information. And they think about tools like classification. Now, I don't doubt that the scientists and professionals at HHS that's not the approach that they take to the issue. But I'm just saying that there's a broader conceptual context into which these things fall. It's not just about Trump. It's about Trump plus that context. And so after Trump, we still need to deal with that context. Now, when it comes to domestic politics, I think there are a couple of things to think about. One is that 
following the president's lead, we've seen in conservative media, both Fox News and the broader kind of talk radio ecosystem, a lot of questioning and challenging the seriousness of this virus or the threat that it poses to the public. And so to the extent that you have people who, from a political identity um, standpoint, hew to that conservative media as their news source, um, they are going to be less likely to follow the sorts of directives that are being given by federal, state, and local governments now about how to protect yourself, you know, avoiding large gatherings, washing your hands, staying home if you're sick, stuff like that. So it may well be that that there's a partisan valence in the public response here that we might see potentially emerge in transmission patterns. But of course, as long as we don't have widespread testing, we're not going to know um, what those transmission patterns look like. I think what's interesting about the decision by Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden to cancel their rallies, they were both planning to hold rallies in Cleveland, Ohio, and they were both responding to a request by the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, after a half dozen or so cases of coronavirus have been confirmed in the state of Ohio. And so I think that going forward, you have the federal government setting a tone. You have this ridiculously counterproductive messaging from the president himself. But you also have state and local officials who are making more day-to-day decisions that actually have more impact on the behavior of individuals, on what happens in local economies. And, you know, for example, the decision to create an isolation zone around New Rochelle, New York, that was a decision of the governor of New York. The president of the United States didn't have anything to say about that. And so as we look ahead at the consequences of coronavirus spread and government efforts to mitigate it, it's going to be governors and mayors that are making the important decisions. It's going to be county executive bodies making decisions in a lot of places about, for example, how do we conduct elections? How do we have voting day if we want people to maintain social distance? That stuff is is going to be decided state by state, county by county, And hopefully there is enough room in that for innovation and creativity and also more room for scientists and public health professionals to weigh in in a way that's decisive, more room than we've seen at the federal level. Vote by telepathy. Like, I mean, one thing that is terrifyingly clear at this point is um, how far behind we already are, that we've already lost critical weeks to uh, to help to try and slow the transmission of this disease and that Italy is really providing um, just an absolutely horrifying illustration of what happens whenever you have inadequate response in the early weeks and that um, even if you try to get your act together, you know, with a few days left to spare, um, it, it really is not enough. Yeah, and that's actually a great segue into this second part of the discussion, and we're going to get to Italy for sure because that is it is a genuinely horrifying uh, scene that's going on there with hopefully a lot of lessons to learn quickly. The WHO, today the World Health Organization, declared officially that coronavirus is a pandemic. Uh, as of Tuesday, the WHO was reporting more than 142,000 cases in 109 countries on six continents. Uh, Angela Merkel today said that 70% of Germans could be infected. 
Ben, talk about what we're seeing in terms of the spread and the numbers in the European Union. And I think as, as Susan was referencing there as well, it's almost like they are sort of, you know, two weeks ahead in the storyline, it seems, and we can kind of see it like a wave that's coming at us. Do you think, do you think that's right? I do. Uh, so everybody's talking about Italy where there have been, you know, over 10,000 cases and people have talked a lot about Iran, where there are con- sort of comparable number, nine, eight, nine thousand, although I-, I suspect the numbers are probably higher in Iran than have are being reported. But, uh, you know, there are more than 2,000 cases in Spain, nearly 2,000 in France, 1,500 plus in Germany, and the UK, you know, which has uh, managed to limit numbers so far, uh, have not managed to limit the spread in the uh, government where the health minister herself has it. You know, even in the UK, you're talking 350 plus cases. Uh, There are now cases in all of the European Union countries. And I, I think you are looking at a situation in which some parts of Europe are a a couple weeks behind us, and some parts of Europe are a few weeks ahead of us. But I don't see any country actually that has, you know, been able to put up a a, a bio wall, let alone let Mexico pay for it. But you know, put up a a real barrier and enable it to stand. And you are talking about a in all over the world, a naive population to this virus. And so I think, you know, realistically, we are talking about a wave sweeping through a lot of the world. And, you know, that goes to Susan's point about what you can do to, you know, keep the bulge in that curve as low as possible so that hospitals don't get overwhelmed and, you know, healthcare infrastructure doesn't get overly stressed, the rate of transmission becomes a very important factor. And that's why these social distancing measures are so important. Susan, if we look at what's happening in Italy, and particularly in the northern part of the country, where we've seen, where we saw the outbreak, obviously the whole country has been locked down essentially now. I think I've seen a report that India is doing the same. But really the the locus of this in Europe seems to have really been focused on on Italy in terms of severity and giving us a sense of what the response needs to be but also what its limits are. So we are seeing these stories of hospitals you know, being overwhelmed, being unable to treat all of the sick patients in addition to the patients that they already have. Yasha Monk actually tweeted out earlier an Italian document that was basically giving guidance to hospitals to triage patients. Um, so this is looking like wartime medicine. I'm curious what you think about that. And with that in mind, what should U.S. officials be watching for kind of specifically as we're seeing, you know, Italian hospitals and authorities try to manage this and also try to implement these border controls? 
Yeah, so you know, first of all, I I look at sort of the the Italy cases um, with special interest. You know, both my spouse and I lived there for for many years, and um, you know, I think some people might have a, a misapprehension about sort of uh, the Italian medical system, particularly the medical system in Lombardy, which is the the region in which this has hit the hardest. Um, it's extraordinary. It's as good as anything in the United States. It's some of the premier uh, hospitals and facilities, uh, really, in all of Europe. And so, and what we're talking about here is not like some backwater, you know. Uh, uh, clinics. We're talking about, um, you know, really massive and, and very, very important hospitals. Um, so I, I think the thing that um, has sort of been the most, um, I, I think, scary to me in terms of sort of reports out of Italy um, uh, is is this sort of viral thread that's going around that's an English translation of, uh, of an Italian ICU doctor um, who's sort of writing about his experience. Um, and so, you know, I, I won't read the whole thread, but, um, but he begins by saying, you know, that he himself sort of was um, amazed to see sort of, you know, the entire hospital getting reorganized, all elective procedures being canceled. And, and he describes this period of time in which he says, um, uh, an atmosphere of silence and surreal emptiness to the corridors of the hospital that we did not yet understand, waiting for a war that has yet to begun, and that many were not so sure would come with such ferocity. And so he's talking about, you know, look, we made it, you know, we canceled all these procedures, and we thought, like, are we just crazy? And we have this empty hospital. Um, and then, of course, I think everybody, you know, sort of knows the ending, which is that all of a sudden this tidal wave comes, um, you know, and, and the first day it's 25 and the next day it's 300 and the day after that it's 1,000. Um, and so they run out of ventilators. And so, you know, whenever Shane talks about wartime medicine and triaging patients, you know, we should be clear what we're talking about. We're talking about doctors looking at patients and deciding that the probability of saving their life is too low to even bother. Um, and so they're going to have to move on to the next patient. Um, this is in a highly, highly developed country, and this is what happens happens whenever, uh, you know, th- these curves do n- you know, basically exceed medical capacity and, co- and exceed hospital capacity. And, and this is something, you know, this is the reason why experts in the United States are so incredibly worried. We have more ICU beds per citizen than a lot of countries. We're actually going into this with a relatively strong advantage. But that advantage doesn't matter if you don't take early steps in order to try and reduce the transmission of the virus. And and I think that's a reason to be, um, one, really, really watching what's happening in Europe and, and trying to use it as a wake-up call for people here. They have to take this seriously. They have to take it seriously, even if they can't quite see it yet. And they, maybe they feel a little bit foolish and it feels a little bit silly. And, you know, look, worst case scenario, you overreacted a little bit. You worked from home when you didn't need to. You know, your kid was home from school for a few days whenever they actually didn't need to. Um, you know, the, the downside risks of getting this wrong are really, really overwhelming. Um, and that, you know, we're going to be in this place pretty quickly. I think it was um, Megan McArdle in the Washington Post who wrote, um, you know, that sort of the metaphor of a, of a pond where there are lily pads and the lily pads, you know, double each and every day. So on day one, there's one and then two and then four. And so she says, you know, people always get tripped up on the question on if it takes 48 days for the pond uh, to be completely covered, on what day is half the pond covered? The answer is on day 47. That's how exponential growth works here. And that on day 40, you wouldn't even notice that you had a problem at all. And so, you know, this is really... um, uh, it's sort of the worst possible crisis for the for, for an an administration like the Trump administration to face because of their sort of inability to tell the truth and to uh, have credibility with the public to ask them to engage in these sort of responsible social measures and 
And instead, you have the president who's making a point of shaking hands and holding these rallies and and really doing things to um, to make things even worse. And um, we are going to see the potential consequences of that, you know, not months from now, but, you know, I think Tom Bossert, the former Homeland Security Advisor, I think two days ago, wrote that 10 days from now, our hospitals are going to see this tidal wave and, and people better get ready. Tammy, that's a nice setup for talking about the foreign policy implications of this as well. You know, already we've seen, you know, Iran was especially hit hard, reports that the vice president there has contracted the virus. So clearly this is now affecting leadership in certain countries, maybe not ones that we have the greatest relationship with. The State Department actually announced today that the G7 ministerial that was going to be planned for later this month in Pittsburgh will now be held virtually. Uh, so there's a ripple effect there as well. Talk about what you see as the foreign policy dynamics of this, and especially in the context in which you have a president that is deeply transactional in our relationships with other countries and uh, likes to criticize even our close allies by saying that they're not pulling their weight and doing their fair share. Well, and uh, let's not forget a president who's also a germaphobe. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's where the, the shaking hands thing surprised me for that very reason. He must have really had to swallow hard. Yeah. So I honestly, um, in the case of our president, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure whether the cancellation of in-person summits makes that much of a difference because he hates these things, uh, these group gatherings, and he doesn't have a lot of personal chemistry with the other G7 members or with most world leaders except for his favorite dictators. And so I don't think it makes much difference for him in particular, but for the world in general, this coronavirus public health challenge is revealing a bunch of things. It's revealing first, you know, just how interdependent we have become, just how much globalization has shaped the way we live today. So, you know, if you think about just-in-time production schedules and global supply chains, the fact that you have a few countries that are so hard hit that it's basically severely impacted their domestic economic activity, their domestic manufacturing, China and Italy, you know, that is already having impact on global supply chains. You have other countries that are and have for a long time been dependent on food imports for domestic consumption. And they are now anticipating that they're going to have food shortages in certain areas and people are stocking up and hoarding food in those countries. So, you know, globalization has its upsides in greater efficiency and lower prices and, you know, all kinds of other things. But now we're seeing how interdependent we are and how much the actions of other countries in dealing with this public health crisis affects us at home. Um, so that's, I think, the first major impact. It's not about foreign policy per se, but it sure is about global politics and economics. The second point is the way in which this virus may impact ongoing foreign policy crises. You know, North Korea launched a bunch of missiles the other day. I don't think it even made the front page of major American papers because we have other stuff going on, other fish to fry. And for the North Koreans who use missile launches as a way of harnessing international attention, or the Iranians who also often create crises in their region in order to demand international attention for their concerns, 
having a global pandemic push their efforts off the headlines, you know, may send them into uh, greater spikes of more aggressive activity to get the attention that they want. Or contrarily, it may put them in a position where they simply can't win uh, the diplomatic attention that they want. And so they're going to have to find other ways to deal with their problems. It also means that there are a bunch of ongoing diplomatic efforts that are going to be halted or, you know, perhaps halted, but at least slowed down significantly by this. One is the effort to get a ceasefire in Libya. Uh, France and Germany have been trying to defuse a major crisis that has the Russians backing one side and the Turks backing another side in Libya. Um, that effort may be off the table. The very, very delicate peace deal in Afghanistan and uh, the hope to begin withdrawing American troops is another. Efforts to resolve the Yemen war are a third. And so we talk about the ways in which people who are already suffering in the world may be worst impacted by this public health crisis, but think about the victims of conflict around the world who are going to be impacted in multiple ways by this public health crisis as well. And as we're talking, uh, the White we just reported this in the Post, the White House is considering moving all of Europe to a level three travel advisory, uh, which would essentially discourage all non-essential travel to the continent. Um, Meanwhile, know, we'll, we'll Europe is considering exactly the same thing about the United States, I would imagine. I would think so. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is the talk about social distancing on a transcontinental scale, right? Which, I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, look, look, I mean, I, I don't think anybody could be faulted for, you know, perhaps advising its citizens don't travel at a time like this. I think we're all considering that. But, you know, to Tammy's point, I mean, this is pointing out the global nature of it, but is going to then stress those relationships. It's going to stress commerce. And I and I do wonder if there kind of becomes some sort of weird tit for tat that people start engaging in, if the, if the response to this becomes, you know, combative rather than cooperative. Right. It's also interesting seeing sort of China attempting almost not, I don't want to say exploiting because I don't know that it's fair to to impute bad faith, but um, China has offered to send a thousand ventilator, uh, ventilators to Italy. Right. They're being really, really proactive about attempting to provide concrete aid to foreign countries. Well, Xi Jinping showed up in Wuhan, which was the you know we think this epicenter of this, uh, as if to say you know all is well, it's fine, it's right, not but, fine. But they're also you know China's also using this as an opportunity to you know strengthen its relationships sure. with with other countries, and um, you know at the same time that um, we have Mike Pompeo doing this silly Wuhan virus and China virus sort of name game, um, which right. is just absurd and, and uh, really quite petty. Um, you know, it, it does appear that um, that this might be the kind of event that, that could, you know, really reset large and longstanding relationships. Right, right. Um, well, let's let's focus on a particular crisis developing in a very important part of the world. That is Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've seen reports in recent days, uh, and it's important to stress, but we still some things we don't fully know about this, but that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, heir apparent to the throne, has been at it again, uh, rounding up rivals and royals, uh, including reports say – uh, arresting uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, who had previously been the crown prince, and listeners of the podcast probably remember was someone that U.S. intelligence agencies were actually quite close to uh, uh, for for many years. MBS has also decided now is the time to go to uh, to war, so to speak, 
with Russia, uh, which was refusing to decrease production of oil to try and keep prices up and decided to start producing more. So the Saudis said, well, we'll do it too. Um, So now we have oil prices plummeting. Tammy, talk about why Mohammed bin Salman is making these moves now, both internal with the power struggles, as well as you know, engaging in a kind of economic warfare that is not incredibly helpful uh, to his apparently very good friend, the president. <laughs> yes. Well, we're going to come back around to global politics and, and coronavirus by the end of the story. But, but let me just start with the fact that these two moves, first starting an oil price war with the Russians, And second, rounding up, if we can believe the reporting, around 20 senior princes from the Saudi royal family, including not only Mohammed bin Nayef, who Mohammed bin Salman displaced as crown prince, but also Prince Ahmed bin Abdulaziz, who's King Salman's full brother and uh, someone who had been living in London for a long time and was enticed to come back to the kingdom by the king and the crown prince with promises that he would be safe and and could play a positive role in reforming the country. So these are two major figures in the Saudi royal family, and apparently a bunch of their relatives and associates were also picked up, some released, some still in detention. We don't actually know all the names. And so what is going on here? A couple of things. Number one, Mohammed bin Salman has been known since even before he became crown prince for these very aggressive moves. Um, Not someone who acts in a subtle manner, not risk averse, quite the opposite. Saying to the Russians, look, you won't agree with me on production cuts to keep prices at a level we like, fine, we can outproduce you and push you out of the market. And so that's what they're doing now. The Saudis have more swing capacity, more ability to ramp up their oil production than any other producer in the world by far. And so they have now promised to boost their production to 13 million barrels a day, which is extraordinary. And it will probably take prices down globally to, you know, 20 to $30 a barrel. Now, this is going to cost them money too. You know, most of the Gulf oil producers have a price assumption built into their government budgets that's somewhere between $40 a barrel and $100 a barrel. I think for the Saudis, it's around 70 or so dollars a barrel. And so they're losing money basically on every barrel that they sell in this oil price war. They're doing this on the assumption that it's going to hurt the Iranians, it's going to hurt the Russians, and it's going to hurt U.S. shale production more than it's going to hurt the Saudis. And that's probably a good assumption, at least in the short to medium term, because the Saudis can borrow a lot of money if they need to. And they can also, you know, just tell their government agencies to spend less in this centralized system. They can basically order that and it'll be done. But the longer this goes on, the harder it gets to sustain. And of course, this Saudi government has its own ambitious domestic plans. And that's where we get to the domestic repression side of this story. Why go after these princes right now? Mohammed bin Salman's already the crown prince. He is going to succeed his father when his father passes from the scene. You know, he had already sidelined Mohammed bin Nayef and apparently put him under house arrest. So 
you know, why go this extra step just to humiliate them? There are two reasons that are speculated about. We don't have any evidence on either one. One is that perhaps the king is on his last legs. And there is always a vulnerable moment in any monarchy when the old king dies before the new king takes power. That would be the moment when unhappy members of the family might try to stage a palace coup. So getting rid of these guys right now staves off that threat if you believe that succession is about to occur. The other possibility is uh, something that's being rumored about right now in the kingdom which is that Saudi Arabia is chairing the G20 this year. They're supposed to host the G20 summit this November in Riyadh. This is Mohammed bin Salman's sort of crowning achievement so far. It's his chance to claim the world stage and to host all these major economies in Riyadh and to be sort of first among equals of the top 20 global economies. And there are rumors that he wanted to accede to the throne before the G20 so that he is king at the time of the G20 summit and that he might need to consolidate his control over the royal family in order to make that happen to get the king, King Salman, his father, who has dementia and is in frail health, to get him into a position where the family council agrees to sort of have him abdicate and have Mohammed bin Salman take over. All of that is speculation. We can't see through the veil of the royal family. But what we know is that Mohammed bin Salman is not feeling particularly secure right now. If he were, he wouldn't have to take this kind of bold action at home. And that's that's a really interesting point. Ben, I want to turn to you on this. Um, I agree. I mean, it seems to you know very clearly indicate an insecurity on the part of Mohammed bin Salman in his position, which in a way sort of puzzles me because if we think back to 2017 after Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, was murdered and the CIA, as we all know, concluded Mohammed bin Salman directed that and the special rapporteur at the UN really dug in deep to that. You know, MBS was a pariah for a good part of 2018, the so-called Davos in the Desert Summit that he liked to host. Uh, people pulled out of that. You saw people uh, distancing themselves, to use that word again, from Saudi Arabia. That seems to all sort of the, be changing. The tide seems to be coming back in again. We've seen reinvestment. We've seen obviously the G20 is going to be there. And it almost makes me think that there's been this kind of cooling off period after MBS's last, you know, round of you know, rounding up, you know, his relatives and shaking them down for money in the Ritz and killing Jamal Khashoggi and all the and the war in Yemen. He seemed to be kind of rebounding and getting back into the, I guess, polite global society. So, you know, I wonder if he just sort of kind of gets skates from this one as well, because it doesn't seem that people are uh, uh, ready to sever that relationship. And he he must be feeling insecure about this. But I suppose, you know, in some way, I guess what I'm arguing is, you know, why should he? Because the world is still going to embrace him. Well, as Susan Collins said of Donald Trump, he's clearly learned his lesson. And uh, I think people are very confident that he'll never do it again. He's growing in the job. He's, uh, you know, becoming a more responsible custodian of his position. Uh, and if that sounds ridiculous, of course it is. But I look, I think the answer to your question honestly is the same answer as with Donald Trump, which is that he can't help it. 
because, uh, you know, in Trump's case, it's that he's a crazy narcissist. And in Mohammed bin Salman's case, I think he's actually a psychotic killer who, you know, doesn't actually, he's clearly got some paranoid streaks going. He's, you know, he sees uh, enemies around every corner. And by the way, you know, in the kingdom, in that family, that may not be completely irrational. You know, it's not an area where everybody plays nice all the time. That said, the one thing that is really consistent about this guy is that he uses uh, more coercion than is necessary, more violence than is necessary. And the fact that it has blowback may mean that he regrets in a short in a in the short term having done it but it doesn't mean he's less likely to do it again because he's uh he doesn't seem to be wired that way and you know one thing about being a dictator is that it does involve a certain measure of fear for your position growing anxiety and paranoia over time and he seems to be a very good example of that and have learned it relatively young and relatively early. And in that sense, he seems quite like Kim Jong-un, who also has that quality of being sort of young and with a very brittle ego and a pretty dangerously violent propensity to uh, keep himself secure. So I guess I would say when you say, why doesn't he feel secure? It may just be a character trait. Yeah, look, I I also think that this is um, a moment that reveals the hollowness of the relationships between MBS and Jared Kushner or Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin that, you know, we're told again and again that um, that these engagements are are somehow going to renown to the benefit of the nation. And and, uh, if ever there was a moment in which to show the influence, the benefit of access, the reason for, um, you know, cozying up to these otherwise unsavory figures, it would be now either in sort of the oil confrontation between Russia and Saudi uh, or or Kushner's relationship with MBS. And, uh, and and clearly he has no influence whatsoever. And so, uh, you know, I, I just think it shows um, how completely uh, our own uh, young American princeling has been played by MBS uh, and, and how ineffective and impotent and unable to, uh, to influence Saudi behavior or actions uh, he actually has turned out to be. Can I just add one one point on this, which is that, you know, to the extent that there's an argument for, you know, he may be a bastard, but he's our bastard, which is a point often made when it comes to U.S. relations with these kinds of autocrats. I think it's important to recognize the extent to which the Saudi relationship with the United States has gone well outside the normal bounds of a bilateral relationship so that it's actually really hard to claim that despite, you know, they're purchasing billions in weapons from our arms industry, it's hard to claim that this is a partnership that benefits the United States more than it harms the United States. This is a Saudi government that, you know, of course, 
lured an American resident abroad and chopped him up in a diplomatic facility. But it's more than that. It's also a Saudi government that, you know, as was revealed in an FBI report declassified and delivered to Congress a few weeks ago, a Saudi government that helps its own citizens facing criminal charges in the United States flee American soil and American justice. It's a Saudi government that has planted spies in the heart of a major American multinational corporation in order to get information on its own dissidents. It's a Saudi government that has tried to abduct Saudi dissidents living in the United States and take them back home. This is all way outside the bounds of a cooperative bilateral partnership. And so, you know, yeah, they may help us with intelligence cooperation. We may be defense partners against Iran, you know, but they are not helping us with oil prices. And more than that, they're breaking all the rules. All right. Let's keep with the rules and move on to object lessons. Uh, Ben, do you want to go first? I would be happy to. Uh, So for those listeners who may be wondering, where did Ben get that data on European Union coronavirus cases? You're amazingly up to date, Ben. Where Uh, did you get that data? Exactly. For those listeners who are asking themselves that question, I want to tell you about a 17-year-old high school student in Washington State named Avi Schiffman. Avi Schiffman, who seems to be a fairly talented programmer, has created a website, uh, the URL of which uh, he needs some a little bit of help on how to name websites. So oh, web- I'm great at that. The website is, is ncov2019.live. And ncov2019.live is a remarkable real-time resource for data worldwide on coronavirus cases. And it seems to scrape the web for data uh, from uh, a lot of different countries and put them up in real time. It sorts cases into confirmed cases, deaths, and recoveries by country and by state in the United States. It seems to be, broadly speaking, consistent with the data that countries are releasing. Sometimes it's a little bit ahead, sometimes it's a little bit behind. And so uh, maybe the high schoolers will save us, but if not, they will at least keep us informed. God bless the youth. Uh, Tammy, what's your object? Uh, my object is a person, a person who is celebrating this very day his 100th birthday. And so for my object lesson, I want to give a shout out to Benjamin Ferenc. Benjamin Ferenc was a brand new graduate of Harvard Law School in 1943 um, when he joined the U.S. Army after he ended the war um, gathering evidence about Nazi war crimes and visiting liberated concentration camps to gather evidence that was then used in the Nuremberg tribunals. And at age 27, after his discharge from the army, uh, he ended up becoming a prosecutor in the Nuremberg tribunals, particularly leading the prosecution of the Einsatzgruppen, who sort of went out hunting Jews. 
he has spent his entire life since then working on behalf of war crimes accountability, developing international legal codes, building awareness, advocating on behalf of restitution for victims of genocide and victims of the Nazis. And today, as he celebrates his 100th birthday, it's an opportunity not only to admire his legacy, but to also thank him for uh, his persistent work through all the decades since World War II to ensure that never again really means never again. So shout out. Happy birthday, Ben Ferenc. And I believe he's Happy the birthday. last living Nuremberg prosecutor. Is that, that right? That is correct. Wow. Wow. That is that is something. Uh, well, happy birthday. That is great. Uh, and happy end of the podcast. We made it through. We did. We'll see if we have successfully recorded audio on both ends. <laughs> <laughs> if you're hearing this, it means it was a success. Oh, my goodness. We're going to get good at this. Before you I, know, we I miss you, though. This country. I miss you guys, too. Hearing your disembodied voices is not quite the same as having you all here. My friends, my audience. We we look forward to drinking scotch with you soon. Oh, I might just take this home. You don't need it, right? Oh, Talisker, that's pretty don't good. Don't touch uh, the Talisker. Leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find uh, special uh, coronavirus challenge coins at ncov17.live underscore store place. Lies. Lies. You can find <laughs> Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. There are no coronavirus challenge coins, though it does present a challenge. It does. Shane, the public needs credible information from their host about the location of thelawfarestore.com. And for <laughs> you, you the to undermine podcast, <laughs> their confidence... Let's be honest. No one who listens to this podcast more than once expects credible information about the website. That's true. That's true. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. There's going to be a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands at home who are going to need to binge on podcasts. They can listen to the archive. That's right. They can listen to the archive. Think of the public service you will be doing by letting other people know about how they, too, can spend an hour of their time in quarantine. It's going to be great. Don't just transmit diseases. Transmit, transmit a little, a little knowledge in your and ear. Love. That's good, Susan. It's like it, it, it reminds me of the old "Make Love, Not War" bumper stickers. You know, transmit podcasts, not diseases. <laughs> I like that. That's catchy. <laughs> Work on the phrasing. Uh, our intrepid audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mike Pence with his mournful acoustic solo version of Give Me Shelter. <laughs> Very good. Mother likes nice. it. Mother likes it. M- mother's doing the post. I the thought you were going to go with my Sharona. <gasps> no, we did that, that last, last week. week. Oh, yeah. I can't keep beating this dead horse. I can, if you'd like. There are only so many puns we can make about this deadly pandemic (laughs) headed for us all. Before people start to be like, all right, this is in bad taste. (laughs) Sophia Yam will be first among them. Oh, my goodness. And she knows something about the front lines of coronavirus as well. If you didn't catch that podcast with Lisa Monaco, go back and check it out. On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week from wherever we are. Bye-bye. <laughs>